We had we had democracy only for 10 years. Just a taste of it. And Just a taste. We don't want to go back to the dark age. It's April 2021. We're at a busy market in Yangon, the biggest city in Myanmar. And we're witnessing something extraordinary. We want democracy. Okay. We want democracy. We want democracy. We're surrounded by security officers, but the brave people in front of us are chanting, we want democracy, taking a stand against a brutal military dictatorship. I'm Clarissa Ward, CNN's chief international correspondent. At the beginning of the year, Myanmar's future seemed bright. It had a rapidly expanding economy and a young democracy that was coming into its own. Then, on the morning of February 1st, that all crumbled away. We are following breaking news out of Myanmar, where the military has seized power in a coup. The army announced on military TV it had declared a state of emergency and handed power to a top general. The acting leader of Myanmar's deposed civilian government said, this is the darkest moment of the nation. Time for our citizens to test their resistance. What followed was the biggest protest movement in Myanmar's history. For months, people across the country marched on the streets, only to be met by a violent, brutal crackdown. Activist groups say so far, more than 1,000 civilians have been killed, including dozens of children. And the real number's probably a lot higher. Thousands of people have been arrested. What's happening in Myanmar is part of a larger struggle for power playing out around the world. Autocracies are on the rise. And yet, in Myanmar and many other places, the people are not surrendering. They're fighting back, online and on the streets, using the one thing they do have. How will you stop this from, how will you stop it from going back? How do you want to stop the coup? As much as we can send our voice to the world, because we don't have weapons, just only we have voice. Call it David and Goliath, if you like, reimagined for the 21st century. This is Tug of War, Episode 3, Myanmar. It's March 30th, 2021. I've just arrived in Myanmar with my producer, Brent Swales, and cameraman, Scott McWinney. We're the first foreign journalist to be allowed to enter the country since the coup. For the past few months, everything we've seen from inside Myanmar has come from extraordinarily brave local journalists and activists. Many of them have been arrested or killed. The only way we could get in was with the military hosting us. That gives us a measure of protection our local colleagues don't have. But it also means our movements will be controlled and our every word and action closely watched. 
We're driving now from the airport to the guest house where the military has us staying. The streets are completely empty. There's a curfew in place from 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. Our car rolls through these large steel gates, and we're in a compound. It's surrounded by high walls. There's armed guards patrolling the perimeter. This is the guest house where the military says we have to stay. There's no choice, and we're definitely not going to be able to walk in and out of those gates as we please. Yes, sir. Number four. Number four. Yes, just like a bomb is number four. <laughs> this is for me? Yes. Okay. Okay. Our minder takes us to our assigned rooms. Number two for Brent, three for Scotty, and four for me. So I'm just walking into my room now. They were quite specific about who was to sleep in which room. I can only assume that our rooms may be wired and that people are probably listening to any conversations that we have in here. So I'm going to be a little bit cautious about what I say in here. The coup happened quietly before dawn while people were still asleep. Myanmar's military has seized power in a coup against the democratically elected government. Tanks lined the streets as parliament was cordoned off. Cell and broadcast communications were blocked. A state of emergency is now in place. On the same day a new parliament was due to open in Myanmar, the fate of the country's democracy is uncertain. People were shocked and angry. They saw their window to the future being slammed shut, and they knew what military rule was like. About the size of Texas, Myanmar sits at the heart of Asia. It's rich in natural resources and has borders with China, India, and three other countries. The army first seized power in 1962, and the country, which was then known as Burma, went on a roller coaster to ruin largely cut off from the outside world. The military elites lived comfortably, while most of the country suffered grinding poverty. Thousands of dissenters are believed to have been killed or jailed. No one really knows the actual death toll. But one woman kept the flame of democracy alight. Aung San Suu Kyi. She paid for her opposition to military rule by spending more than a decade on her house arrest or in detention. In the end, international sanctions against Myanmar may have worked. About 10 years ago, Myanmar's generals began cautiously opening up the country. The first really free election was in 2015. Suu Kyi and her National League for Democracy won a landslide victory. But the military didn't exactly go away. They kept control of key ministries and held on to a quarter of the seats in parliament. Still, it was a major moment. Then in the election last November, Suu Kyi's party won a major victory yet again. And this time it made the military really uneasy. It felt to them like power was slipping away. And actually, the coup happened on the exact day that the new parliament was due to be sworn in. Suu Kyi was among the first to be arrested. The army said it would take control of the country for at least the next 12 months. 
But people were petrified that the months would turn into years. And so they came out onto the streets by the hundreds of thousands. For a few days, the military tolerated the protests, but they quickly resorted to brutal force. When water cannons and rubber bullets weren't enough, they used live rounds. There were arbitrary arrests, beatings, and worse. She says, we are risking our lives to claim victory. We don't have any weapons, but they are fully armed. All we can do is protest. They're shooting us with live bullets. Please help us. I watched all this from afar. I knew we had to try to go, even if it was on the military's terms. It's a dilemma international journalists face regularly in places with repressive regimes like Syria or North Korea. Ultimately, I think it's important to go and then make damn sure you hold the people in power accountable. These are just some of the people following us. One. After the break, our journey continues. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Tug of War. I'm Clarissa Ward. The weekend before we arrived was the deadliest since the coup. In just one day, 114 civilians were killed. So our military hosts were on high alert from the start of the trip. We're just leaving the compound now, and there is a truck full of soldiers in front of us, and a couple of trucks full of soldiers behind us, so. And besides the soldiers, there were all the minders. These are just some of the people following us. One, this guy, two, this guy, three, It's intense, almost absurd at times. Some of the security guys even follow us to the bathroom. We're unable to have an open conversation during the trip. I end up smoking the occasional cigarette because going out for a smoke break in the backyard at night is pretty much the only way that our team can talk things through without being overheard or recorded. Our hosts tell us they want to protect us from the violators, which is their euphemism for protesters. And you'll hear that term again and again. In reality, it's to prevent us from talking to anyone on the streets who might actually support the opposition. 
And so what's this poster here? Okay. With the three finger salute. Okay, okay. That's from people who are against the military. Is that saying that the people in this area are against the military? Um, maybe not sure, but because... Uh, That's the voice of our lead translator, and you'll hear from him quite a lot. He's provided by the military. He won't even tell us his name. He's pretty terrified of people finding out who he works for. We have to be very wary of what he tells us. To put it politely, he's um, on message. Usually on trips, we would arrange for our own translator. And believe me, having a good one can make an enormous difference. But that's the point of authoritarian regimes. They want to try to control everything. So this is who we're stuck with. Can we maybe talk to some of the people? Can we ask them? I'm not sure because I'm just for interpretation. I'm wondering, there's some people over there. Maybe we could go and talk to them. One of our minders whispers something into the translator's ear. Oh, okay. So the security forces told me uh, we shouldn't stay for a long time here uh, for, for our security. For our security? Yeah, yes, because of uh, some demonstration take place in everyone. Is it for our security or because you're worried we might be able to talk to people? Uh, it's, no, because it's dangerous. Okay. All right, let's walk around. Of course, the fact that we were surrounded by soldiers and guards pretty much guaranteed that we wouldn't meet anyone. And that's just what our hosts wanted a picture of serenity and calm. But I knew that wasn't the reality. I've been doing this job for many years. I know that authoritarian regimes don't play nice. So I understood that this trip was going to be challenging. What I wasn't expecting was the attention our visit would get from the people of Myanmar. I think in some ways it became a symbol, like a straw to clutch at. And that attention started before we even arrived. It's incredible. I posted a photograph of my boarding pass getting on the plane earlier. And already I'm getting so many messages from people in Myanmar saying, please tell the story of our struggle. Please tell the world how we're suffering. Once we were there, we were almost like celebrities. It was surreal and frankly unnerving. People snapped photos of us. They made memes and cartoons and shared them all over social media. The military regularly shuts down parts of the internet to try to stop the protesters communicating with each other. But this is a Gen Z-led uprising, and these guys are technologically savvy. They used VPNs and international SIM cards to upload videos for us of cars on the road honking their horns or whole apartment blocks banging pots and pans with the caption, we know you can't see us, but we hope you can hear us. Banging pots and pans is an old tradition in Myanmar to ward off evil spirits. But in the aftermath of the coup, it's increasingly become the sound of resistance. Sometimes we would be driving and I could hear them banging away in the distance. It felt so close and yet so far away. From day one of our trip, it's clear that there are two parallel universes in Myanmar, that of the people and that of the military. 
Should I take my shoes off? Wait, no problem. It's okay? It's okay. Okay. The other side. Other side? Okay. We're taken to a government office. They've set up a big whiteboard for us. There's photos of people injured and property that's been vandalized. Every photo has captions, and we're given plastic folders, the old-school kind, with pages of information, I guess you might call it. It sort of feels like a school presentation, but it isn't. Really, it's just a sort of clumsy PR campaign, the kind of thing only an authoritarian regime would actually think might be persuasive. Because of um, the soya A woman comes forward. She's a local singer, very poised, dressed in a striking two-piece turquoise dress with pearl earrings. She tells us she comes from a military family. So why do you support the military? Because of my family is a military family, and then I believe our military. That's why I support to them. So you were happy when the coup happened? I accept. Not happy. I accept. The woman says that protesters vandalized her house and threatened to kill her. And that, she says, is a violation of her human rights. That's another thing about authoritarian regimes, by the way. They love to co-opt the language of democracies. Can I just ask you, are you aware that in this township, a one-year-old baby girl was shot in the eye by security forces with a rubber bullet and lost her eye? Do you think that's a human rights violation? The uses of babies for demonstration also human rights violation because the security forces shoot at the violators, not intentionally, she said. For the rest of the day and the next, we listen to the same kind of scripted story over and over again. Military supporters telling us how they've been assaulted or had property vandalized by the so-called violators. And many of their stories may well be true, but the reality is that they pale in comparison to the atrocities being carried out by security services, beatings, arrests, torture. The military even admitted to using shoot-to-kill tactics against protesters. I'm starting to get frustrated because it feels like we're no closer to being able to tell that story. While people are literally dying on the streets, I'm stuck in a government office listening to propaganda. After the break, the protesters come to us with dangerous consequences. I think I'll, my life is not safe as well, I think. Don't worry, don't worry, just breathe. Yeah. Breathe. Welcome back to Tug of War. I'm Clarissa Ward. In the car, we drive past a group of people protesting. Of course, we're not allowed to stop and talk to them, but you can feel this resistance all around me. It's simmering just beneath the surface. Some people from the balcony just flashed three fingers at me. That's the Hunger Games salute, which has become emblematic of this uprising. I'm speaking very quietly because I don't want our minders to know what they just did because, honestly, it could be a very dangerous situation for them. My heart's like pounding. 
The symbol protesters have adopted is the three-fingered salute from the Hunger Games movies. It represents solidarity against tyranny. It's been used by protesters in Thailand and Hong Kong, too. I found that fascinating that these memes and symbols that resonate worldwide have become a form of resistance for the new generation. The next morning, after endlessly badgering our minders to let us go to a public place, we're finally brought to an outdoor market. The same day, it's announced that Wi-Fi will be cut off across the country, which is almost certainly not a coincidence. The stalls in the market are packed together tightly. There's everything from flip-flops to fish on sale. We get our cameras rolling and start shooting video of life in the market. We're deliberately hanging back a little because we have security services with us. But after a few minutes, we see a man step into our camera's view. He's middle-aged, wearing a blue cap, and he looks right into the lens and holds up his three fingers to the sky. And then he weaves through the crowd and comes right up to us. I saw that you did that symbol. Why do you do that? He's struggling to find the words in English, and one of our minders tries to butt in. No, we don't. You just stand back. I brush him off because I don't want him to intimidate the man, and I really don't want him to try to spin whatever he's trying to say. Just it. Just it. We want to just it. You want justice? Just it, yes. You want justice? We want want really democracy. We want really democracy. You want really democracy? I can see he's trembling, as if in shock at his own bravery. Anyway, I think for your safety... No, I'm safe. You're safe? Yes. Well, you're a brave man. Yes. You're a brave man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Word quickly spreads that our crew is in the market, and we start to hear that unmistakable sound. Thank you. Everybody, God bless you all. They're banging pots and pans. You hear them? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It gets louder and louder. Within seconds, it's the only thing you can hear in the whole market. sound of people banging their pots and pans, banging together whatever they've got at hand, just to make a noise. It seems like everyone around us has joined in. Men, women, old and young, they're waving the Hunger Games salute to the beat of their banging. And it's amazing how contagious that kind of courage can be. I've seen it in Damascus and Moscow where the only thing that people have is each other. And the three of us, me, Brent, and Scotty, are just standing there looking at each other, astonished and honestly moved. We're surrounded by soldiers and yet the people just keep going. We want democracy, we don't want military coup. A young woman stops in front of our camera. She's trying to catch her breath. She says she was in the middle of teaching a class nearby when she heard the banging. So she ran down to catch us. We need our leader back. We don't need another election. Are you not scared to talk to me right now? I'm not afraid at all. If we are afraid, we people 
around here will not hit the vent and the pen. The police are coming now, it looks like. Yeah. A lot of we don't police want filing them. In. Please, please, we need your strong support. Do you know people who have been killed or who have been arrested? Honestly, my boyfriend has been arrested. He was released just about three days ago. And we are really scared. We used to say we don't want to go back to the dark age. We lost our voice and we had, we had democracy only for 10 years. You know, just only for 10 years, but it was not the fully, you know, democracy. Just a taste of it. And Just a taste. We don't want to go back to the dark age. How will you stop it from going back? How do you want to stop the coup? As much as we can send our voice to the world because we don't have weapons. Just only we have voice. But that voice is the voice of the people. And it is powerful. The young woman turns to the crowd gathered around us and begins to lead a chant. We want democracy, Lord Odaya. We want democracy. We want democracy. By now, we're starting to get really nervous. This display of defiance is really because we're in the market, and that's a heavy responsibility. We're leaving now because we just don't want to get anybody into trouble. I'm concerned that those people, those very brave people, could face serious repercussions for talking to us like they just did. We get into our van and the convoy drives off. Our minders are sort of in a state of shock, honestly. I I don't think they know what to do. I immediately take our memory cards from Scotty and slip them into my broad, just in case someone tries to take our material. We know the risks these people took to speak to us, and we want to make sure their voices are heard. Later in the day, we're at another market near a military base, and the same thing happens. People see us, and they approach us. We're just getting ready to leave when we see a woman run up to us. She's on the phone, frantic. She tells us her siblings and friend have just been arrested for talking to us. Yeah, yeah. It's my brother, actually. Okay. He called, she called him. Okay. Yeah, car. And my sister and my brother inside the car. They stopped the car? And they arrested. They arrested them? Yeah. Brent asks where the car know. is. Come on, like, where is the car? Uh, uh, they, they, they call them. I don't, I don't know. Uh, there's three in the car, and then one is my friend. Yes, I saw. I remember her. Two is my brother and my sister. I feel sick. We had tried to avoid repercussions by leaving the crowd, but now my worst fear was reality. I think I'll, my life is not safe as well. I think. Don't worry, don't worry, just breathe. Yeah. Breathe. I don't know what to do now. Do you have any friend here that you can go and no. sit with? I don't know. I think they go around me, I think. I promise her I will take up the issue with our minders. I will talk to them. I will talk to them. This is Brent. He's my producer. We work together, okay? 
That's his email, his phone number, everything, okay? If you need anything, if anything happens to you, you reach out to us or you get a friend to reach out to us, okay? Because you should not be punished just for talking to us, okay? All right. Later that day, we learned that eight people we interacted with at the market have been arrested. Some for telling us they want to live in democracy, others just for flashing the three-finger salute. Another three we didn't even talk to are also reportedly arrested. It's your worst nightmare as a journalist to know that someone could face punishment just for talking to you. But if you don't let them speak, you're essentially silencing their voice. We warned the protesters that security forces were watching us, and yet they still wanted to grasp this opportunity to be heard. Like that woman at the market said, we have only our voice. We spend the next 35 hours furiously trying to get these people released. We ask our minders, tell them to reach out to their higher-ups. We call the military's PR reps, even. And then we went to the capital city, Naypyidaw, to ask a senior general. Uh, sorry to keep you waiting. That's not a problem. General, appreciate your patience. No problem at all. You're going to be sitting there. Thank you, General. Major General Zhao Mintun is the spokesperson for the military. He was promoted after the coup, and he's got kind of a pompous air about him, like he's basking in his new authority. We meet at the Defense Services Museum. It's this enormous monolith of a building that reminds me very much of Soviet architecture. We're sitting in this big, imposing hall, and there's portraits all over the walls of Myanmar's most important generals. This is clearly his turf. Can you please explain why you would be arresting people for talking to us? And can we please implore you to release them immediately? The security forces were worried that they will provoke others and will start a protest in the market. That's why they got arrested. However, the government is arranging to release them as soon as possible. I hope they will get released today. We were later able to confirm that the eight people who we had talked to were released in the following days. But I want to keep pushing the general about how we got to the moment we're in now. After the coup, hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets. At what point was the decision taken to start killing protesters? And what was the justification for such brutal action? The security forces gave warnings. First, they shouted to break up the crowds and fired shots in the air. And the crowds were throwing stones and slingshots at them in the beginning. But later, they were blocking with sandbags, shooting with handmade guns, and throwing Molotov cocktails. Are you seriously comparing stones and slingshots to assault rifles? The military is using weapons against its own people that really only belong on the battlefield. We only use them with minimum force. We are not shooting around without discipline. Those actions were unavoidable because we need to maintain rule of law. We had to shoot them unavoidably. 
The general doesn't deny the killings, but he does dispute the total number of deaths. He tells me that actually about 250 people have died, which is less than half the number that's been documented by human rights groups. What's most disturbing to me, though, is that he seems almost indifferent to the deaths, to the suffering. It's just such a blatant example of how disconnected the military is from the people. It's as if their lives don't even count. It's our last night in Myanmar, and we're still sort of reeling from our encounter with the general. To me, he's exhibit A in this very 21st century struggle between the new authoritarians and the people who aspire to a better life. Our minder Wynne asks us what we think about what we've seen in his country, and I'm pretty candid with him. I tell him that from what we've seen, it's clear that the military doesn't have the support of the people. It's using oppression and brutality to maintain control. And in other countries I've reported from, that road often leads to civil war. He listens and nods thoughtfully without saying anything, inscrutable as always. I wonder if we had met in different circumstances whether he would have told me what he honestly feels. The next morning, we fly out of Myanmar. A young man comes up to me on the plane, and he hands me a letter shyly. It says, Dear Clarissa Ward, please let the world know what has really happened in Myanmar. We civilians don't want military junta. It's signed simply, a Myanmar citizen. Tug of War is a CNN audio original series production. Our executive producer is Megan Marcus, and our senior producer is Haley Thomas. Our podcast producer is Emily Liu. Our associate producers are Alex Stern, Nathan Miller, and Xavier Lopez. Story editing by Tim Lister. Mixing and sound design by Francisco Monroy. On the ground reporting by me, Brent Swales, and Scott McWinney. With support from Miriam Annenberg, David Lindsay, Chip Grabo, Kelly Slade, Ashley Lusk, Lindsay Abrams, Rafina Ahmed, Lisa Namaral, and Courtney Coop. New episodes of Tug of War drop weekly, so do follow us wherever you get your podcasts, and please give us a rating and a review. It helps others find the show. I'm Clarissa Ward. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. 
Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.